Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That there gem of a song is Cars, Gary Newman's 1979 worldwide synth-pop hit. It was so ahead of its time. Still, I wonder what New Wave Newman would make of Uber, the revolutionary $70 billion ride-sharing app. And driverless cars. And so we enlist another British institution, The Economist magazine, to ponder Uber World, the race to reinvent transport. You can lock all your doors. It's the only way to live. Full disclosure, stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's, now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from the road, Alexander Switch, U.S. technology editor at The Economist, where she authored this week's incredible cover package, Uber World, The Race to Reinvent Transport. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And here in studio, Jeff Burkett, director at the investment bank Harris Williams, where he focuses on transportation, i.e. airlines, trucking, marine, and now, in quotes, non-asset-based logistics, closed quotes, a la Uber. Jeff, man, that's actually an asset class now? That is. Uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. I know this is last minute, but I'm so psyched to get you two together and uh, discuss Uber as a kind of a, not just a technology concept, but a logistics concept, a meaning of life concept, a sociological concept. Alexandra, what in the world is Uber? I didn't know what it was as recently as five or six years ago. Now it's right up there with like Xerox and uh, I don't know, you know, it's become a verb. I've been called an Uber for thought leadership. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Much, madam. Uh, I mean, it, that's the $70 billion question. Or in this case, you're saying a $10 trillion question. What is Uber? So Uber has changed a lot over, over its time. It is now an on-demand transportation company. So you can use the app to get a personal car. Uh, you can actually use it to get a meal, too, these days in many cities. And you can help uh, get some, a courier to come to your house in some cities, too. The latter two, the food and the courier, are, are tests. The core of the business is hailing a personal car. But the business has changed a lot. It started, the app launched six years ago. It was just for black cars. I think Travis at the time had this quote that I really Travis enjoyed. Travis Kalanick, the founder, the CEO. 
That's exactly right. And he said, all we wanted to do was be baller in San Francisco. I, he, they just wanted to be able to hail a limousine. Um, the, the idea with the company has become much more democratic. The thrust of the business is now UberX, which is a peer-to-peer ride-sharing firm. So um, you can just be transported by an average person in their car. Um, and that's, I think, where they really hit their stride. Uh, that the price is lower for an UberX. Um, you can get a lot of drivers. You don't have to have professional drivers. Um, and then the beauty of this business in Uber's eyes is that they consider their drivers not to be employees, but independent contractors. So Uber does not own a single car um, and it relies on its drivers to pay the operating expenses. It gives them a cut and keeps the rest. So I look at this primarily as an economic phenomenon. From the from the driver's perspective, this has become a revolutionary way to kind of variableize your, your hours and your pay. And, uh, you know, this is the gig economy. We're coming out of the great disruption of the Great Recession. And a lot of people laid off, a lot of people not as gainfully employed, not where they want to be, but also rethinking, well, if I'm not going to get a 50-hour job, I might get a gig here or there, contract work, and I can variableize kind of at my choosing. I have a car. I'm already paying for the insurance, already paying for the gas. Why don't I make some money, kind of amortize the value of the car? That's right. That's exactly right. Um, the thing that has changed is that it's it's this fascinating marketplace business. So from an economics perspective, um, they've had a very fascinating but complicated time of trying to match supply and demand. And so when they're launching in markets, they have to pay drivers at, from the get-go. They have to guarantee them a certain hourly wage to get them on the road so that passengers can have a short wait time. And then gradually there we see the supply and demand match up. Um, as passengers start using it more and more and then the drivers get more and more rides. The interesting thing from the driver's perspective, especially in an older market like San Francisco, which has had UberX for about four years now, is that the price of each ride has declined really dramatically. So to take an UberX today is half as much as it was two years ago. And so you see that driver earnings are supposed to stay static because the idea was that the volume of trips would go up, but a few drivers have complained to me actually that what started out as a really lucrative gig has become a less so because they have to cover their own expenses and their wages have gone down. Before we even get into that, I mean, I want to kind of open this up to Jeff. If I look back at the founding conceit of Uber, you could look back for time immemorial. I mean, I, I, I've now had a uh, driver's license since 1992 and you know, spare capacity has always been there. You always knew that you were only using your car for this many hours of the week. If I were going to come up with this concept, Blue Sky, like, I don't know if the story is apocryphal. Travis and his girlfriend came up with this idea at New Year's Eve in, in Paris when they couldn't hail a cab. I would immediately think there's no way municipalities are going to let this fly. The taxi licensing commissions, for example, in New York are too entrenched. Um, but I've been told by VCs, by entrepreneurs, but, you know, Visionaries don't think that way. They don't let that block the logic. Uh, but this would have immediately stifled the thought. And next thing you know, the company, five, six years into his existence, Jeff, is worth $70 billion. Yeah, I think you touched on a couple of points that are very interesting. The, the regulatory one uh, is not too far down that list. Alexandra, I, I would wonder how far down uh, the road you got on that topic uh, in, in your piece, because I think where a lot of technology hasn't had to to butt up against the New York taxi system or the airport system within 
a specific uh, geography, that that is going to be a challenge for Uber. And uh, the other topic, uh, Robin, that you you hit on that uh, would also like to pose is what's been interesting from a transportation banker perspective is the the fact that they have brought new drivers into a marketplace. And so when I look at an industry like trucking, that uh, where that has long been an ill of, of, of the trucking industry is driver shortage, can an Uber, the, the Uberization of trucking, if you will, will that bring new truck drivers to the marketplace, uh, which ultimately aids in, in, in shipping um, efficiencies? I think the regulatory piece has been fascinating to watch. Um, I've been actually surprised like from a con- from a competition perspective, um, with the exception of some reports that have, re- have come out in the last day about Chinese regulators potentially looking askance at the Uber combination with its Chinese rival Didi. Generally, competition authorities like Uber um, because it brings in um, an extra option to, for urban transport. Uh, taxi drivers, of course, hate it. And so it's come up against a huge backlash in Germany, Italy, Spain, protests in France. Um, There is no tech company that has such a presence in the physical world, I think. Um, Consumers are just starting to appreciate it. It's becoming a daily habit, but of course it's disrupting whole industries. And so the CEO, Travis Kalanick, has had to develop an extremely thick skin and he has had to be extremely aggressive to push forward. Uh, It's been fascinating to watch. I think they've had more success than I would have anticipated at the beginning. Let me ask you while you're there, you're in Dallas right now, correct? That's right. I'm struck that the most forward-thinking city in Texas, arguably Austin, has effectively snuffed out Uber there. How did that happen? The Austin was wanting to require fingerprints for safety reasons, so that they could have background checks, see the person's criminal, if there's a criminal record, um, have some accountability. Uber and Lyft, its American rival, both thought that that was onerous. It would it would restrict basically the supply of drivers. It would just take too long to get people on board. This idea of progress um, and public safety potentially being at odds is a difficult one because I think in general people want controls and oversight of who's gonna drive them. If you're getting into a stranger's car, that level of trust is I think extremely important and cities wanna be, are trying to figure out how best to regulate it. But the Austin example shows that it's really difficult to understand when people's best interest is really at heart because, of course, now people in Austin, um, they have now a local firm that Uber and Lyft have exited that's trying to fill the gap. But it, it's a really important service, and people in Austin now don't have the ability to use one. Now, Alexandra, when I look at your cover package and uh, when, when you open the story, it says from zero to $70 billion. That's the kind of a the, the valuation right now pegged to Uber, which is the largest of the unicorns, right, these, these not-yet-public companies with billion or larger valuation. It's amazing that it's been allowed to swell this large, but ostensibly they want to show more progress and more of a kind of a roadmap before they go public. I'm quoting from your story here. You say, Uber's valuation is now higher than the market value of 87% of companies in the S&P 500 and more than a third higher than that of GM, which had a gargantuan $152 billion in sales last year. Uh, you know, Uber has 17 times the loss-making company's 2016 revenues at its valuation. Um, so I would look back at that and say that there's a lot of – this is almost like a faith-based business model. You're buying the optionality and kind of the Rorschach of what Uber can become, not one that heavily discounts right now. I'm getting, I'm, I constantly get free rides from Uber for referring people, um, 
you know, it, it's had to concede a lot to compete in emerging markets where people don't have as much of a willingness to pay. But isn't that striking? Doesn't it blow your mind that this brand new company is bigger than General Motors, substantially bigger than General Motors, which is a behemoth? I love I love the faith-based business. The other way of thinking about it is this is kind of like someone selling a Hollywood script. You know, you haven't seen the whole script, but you kind of can imagine what it can become. And so you you put money in hoping that it's as fantastic as you think it might be once everything comes together. You know, it, Uber, so a lot of Uber's valuation is based on Uber, and a lot of it is based on the environment. Investors want a high growth asset in a low growth environment. So startups are the way to go. Uber has been one of the fastest growing startups. Um, you know, where it's expecting to have four billion dollars in net revenue. So that's not its total receipts. That's its you know twenty five percent take. That's going to be in twenty sixteen. Um, growing quickly still. Um, and investors are hoping that this is going to be like Facebook. You know, there were so many doubts about whether Facebook would ever live up to its valuation. People thought it was crazy when Microsoft invested at a uh, $15 billion valuation. When, it went, when Facebook went public uh, in 2012, it was $100 billion. There were reports of, are we in a new tech bubble? And of course, now Facebook is But here, um, here's the deal. You, you, you unpack it yourself. It's one thing to take on an addressable online advertising market. You're talking about maybe a couple hundred billion dollars. It's another thing, and this is a whole new dimension. This is the aha moment where I was like, okay, I need to have Alexandra on this week. You're talking about the global transportation and logistics and mobility market is addressable at $10 trillion. So even if you were to take a sliver off of that, and that's where kind of I think back to my brother, you know, in Miami, who called me breathlessly three weeks ago. He's like, man, I just used this Uber add-on service, this widget thing that treats um, a meal like a passenger and completely delivered this sumptuous stone crab claw meal to me from 15 miles away. And I split the the bill with my neighbors and everything. And it's completely disruptive and it's changed my life and blah, 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 blah. blah. I was like, okay, calm down. And then recently we had a, a guest in studio who has a VC back company that is the Uber for, for blood drawing. I mean, you can get a phlebotomist on demand. Uh, <laughs> so again, this, this kind of divorces away from technology and gets into logistics, much like you might be reading Business Week's cover this week. Um, Amazon is increasingly taking on FedEx. I mean, would an Amazon buy UPS? I mean, this is so whimsical. You don't even know. I mean, in, in Jeff's sense, what is a comparable? Do you compare it to a GM? Do you compare it to an airline? Do you compare it to a technology company? We, we haven't seen any precedent, Alexandra. Uber itself is hoping that you're going to compare it to Amazon, that they are hoping that people, when Amazon started, there were a lot of people who thought it was crazy, but people didn't understand how big the opportunity was. I still was, think it's crazy, but I use it. And they have, there's a double standard <laughs> in that they're not judged on profitability. They're not judged yeah. as a pure retailer with same store sales and, and the typical arcana, but it's, it's kind of Jeff Bezos's uh, reality distortion for field. Like he's a visionary. I believe it. Voila. Next thing you know, it's like, the fourth most valuable company in the country. The difference, though, with Amazon is that, uh, you know, a lot of people were not paying attention to the e-commerce opportunity or doubted it. 
very few people are not paying attention. Uber is not expanding um, in a subtle way. So the, the fact that it's had so much success has attracted a ton of competition and a ton of money into its rivals. And so in some ways its success has brought on a more difficult era for the company because it's having to spend a ton of cash to win over customers um, and fight for market share in all of its, in, in its market. So it's gonna be a long road ahead to get that slice. It's a big opportunity, but there's a lot that can go wrong. Alexandra, it's it's Jeff. Uh, does Uber need trucking to support that $70 billion valuation? I mean, do they, they need something more than ride sharing? Do they need really to get into package delivery? Do they need to become, you know, a logistics provider, a, a FedEx, a UPS to, to eventually you know, grow into that valuation? So I think that there's two things that catalyzed its recent deal. So it, a few weeks ago, it bought Auto, which is an autonomous, we call it, it the autonomous lorry company. Americans would call it a trucking company um, it, for over $600 million. It's less than one year old. Um, I think a lot of that had to do with the talent. They were getting a team from Google's self-driving car um, unit so uh, who had left to start this company. So I think they're very interested in the talent. This is a, a field that does not have a lot of great minds. You know, the, the talent is very concentrated, so they wanted to hire them, and it was an expensive way of doing so. They have recently left China, which was in a potentially enormous market. I think it was the right choice because they were battling with a local rival, losing billions a year. So this was their reveal that they were going into logistics after they closed China down. I don't think that was coincidental. I think they needed to show that they had big things in store. I'm skeptical that in the near term, logistics will be a large part of this business. They do have this food delivery company. The margins aren't great. You know, they charge a $5 delivery fee um, and it, it takes a long time for people to go and pick things up and deliver them. I think they're just trying to keep drivers busy for the time being. Um, over time, I think potentially it is very interesting, but it's its own can of worms. Um, it, a, a highly, in some ways, old-fashioned um, dysfunctional industry um, that will require a lot of battles to disrupt. I think it's interesting, but I, I wouldn't count on them disrupting logistics. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Um, I've been called a veritable Uber for thought leadership and thinkfluence. We are joined by Alexander Switch, U.S. technology editor at The Economist. Uh, she's talking about her great cover this week. Uber's potential market is bigger than you think, uh, from zero to $70 billion in, in like a half a decade. Uh, she's joining us from Texas. And here in studio with me is Jeff Burkett, uh, director at the investment bank Harris Williams, where he focuses on transportation and logistics. Um, may I just say, Alexander, that I'm kind of, you know, you mentioned that in the story when I saw that you're talking about Uber acquiring a, a trucking company. You said a lorry company. And it's it's such a disappointment that you are not that British person I expected. I mean, I imagine hey. you guys, because you don't have bylines and everything, I imagine you like Zanny Mitten Beddoes calls you all in in the morning, like there's a global conference call. There's a, a massive urn of Earl Grey tea and dainty cucumber sandwiches and like, who's covering the lorry beat? Okay. And a bunch of like PhDs and, and uh, houndstooth. And then you're just a great tech reporter who's traveling through Texas. So there's, there's an element of climax to this. So, um, I will say that I'm originally from San Francisco returning to my native habitat. So I, I returned back. Um, but what do economists correspondents look like? I mean, there's this, there's this legend that they're a bunch of, you know, um, uh, 
PhDs, like very precocious, and they use words. Uh, you know, I always I always write down five or six words from every issue of The Economist that I've never heard of before. Uh, most recently, I think you used bathos, B-A-T-H-O-S. Um, I saw animadversion. Uh, it's it's great to actually talk to an economist correspondent. You're not bylined. And anyway, uh, let, me get, let me just get that out of the way. It's a it's a disclaimer. It had to come out. <laughs> I will tell you that we have to write in um, English spelling. Uh, you know, we have a very strict style guide. Um, so I've changed on my email um, and all my settings um, to correct for um, English English rather than American English spelling. And so I sound incredibly pretentious whenever I'm emailing my friends because it's color with a U and flavor with a U. Oh. Um, but I have not yet. Do you have the um, title of Dame? Dame, or do you have a British handle like Hermione or Imogen or anything like that? Not yet, but I'm, if you want to recommend me for Dame, <laughs> I'm happy to accept the nomination. <laughs> Alexandra, talk to me about um, labor relations internally at Uber. I'm struck by how uh, you know both happy and miserable many Uber drivers are that I've dealt with. People have. Uh, we've had people on the show that are real estate agents that use it just as a lead generation service. We've had a venture capitalist who does it to meet other young entrepreneurs. But we have people, younger students, who really complain about the tipping policy or the downward pressure that uh, Travis Kalanick and Uber keep on on prices. I think in the name of corporate growth, uh, it's not allowing people to uh, kind of demand a, a hike the way the cabbies have in New York. The cabbies, you, you surely saw that stat that a cabbie medallion has well outperformed the S&P 500 and oil and bonds over the past 30 years. I had some fun in the story, you know, um, Uber is launching its autonomous car, a pilot in Pittsburgh. And so I had some fun comparing Uber, I call it an aspiring robber baron. But uh, as I think of what can go wrong with Uber, labor relations are right up there. The, it, you know, it relies on this freelance workforce. A lot of it's its contractors consider that really identify with Uber, feel like they work for Uber. Uber says they're not employees. You know that's going through um, several different courts, um, loss, lawsuits, and class action suits on the question of how workers um, should be considered um, and if their employees entitled to benefits or not. Uh, the wage question is also really interesting. Um, Uber claims that the volume of fares has risen as their prices have declined, so earnings have stayed flat is what they claim. But that's not the experience of Uber drivers I spoke to in San Francisco. I talked to a long-time Uber driver who's driven for four years um, who says his earnings have declined 70%, and he said that he feels, quote, betrayed by Uber. Um, and it, well, it San Franciscans into, in defense, they're uniquely aggrieved. I mean, they have this, this. Well, he's a Brazilian San Franciscan, oh, so maybe geez. he's doubly aggrieved. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, he, I, I think he, he speaks, um, for a, you know, a, a considerable size of Uber's workforce that just, you know, is looking for work, grateful for it, but is just unhappy by how costly it is to, to show up in the day and finish, you know, finish the job because you have to pay for gas, you have to pay for car cleaning, um, you, you know, the, you pay for waters for your passengers. So when you look at the net earnings, they don't look as great as one might think. Yeah. In our transportation world, that, that non-asset base 
is um, is a boon to to investors. But you're right; it um, it definitely puts a lot of the burden back on the driver. And I've heard um, it was recently as this week I was asking about uh, Uber cuts from drivers, and one in Dallas did note that it was in excess of the 25 percent that that you uh, you quoted. But so I, I think I, I'm wondering it. Is that disgruntled workforce, or what ultimately is a people problem? Is that driving Uber on this autonomous car and vehicle front? I mean, is that the reason behind the auto investment? It, it seems they're they're uniquely in a spot where they deal with drivers every day. That is their uh, supply chain, if you will, and now they're they're going into uh, autonomous vehicles in a big way. And it's a slightly awkward thing, isn't it, to say, you know, we love we love you and want you to con- continue working for us for the next, you know, however long it takes us to get autonomous cars on the road, and then you're out. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, a lot of a lot of car companies are trying to attack this as well, and we we cover the automotive space, um, and this has always been a a disruptor that is a decade, two decades out into the future. But when you put seventy billion dollars behind it, you wonder if this is is much more near term. Jeff, what's your view on what's going to happen to car sales in a world where ride hailing and shared mobility services are much more common? Is your view that uh, we're going to see people forego car ownership and potentially see auto sales sink? Or do you think that the number of miles driven will be higher so even car sales will stay the same? They'd just be selling to these mobility services. Yeah, I'm torn. I mean, we're coming off a record year to the 2015, a record year of new car sales, um, which is the, the GM reported um, record revenue, uh, $154 billion. Is that what you said, Robin? Yeah. Um, I mean, super strong new car sales. But ultimately, personally, I love the efficiency of this Uber model. My car spends 23 and a half hours of its life every day parked, sitting, depreciating. So when I think about the capital efficiency not only for for my car and cars in general, but also infrastructure. You know, what sitting in gridlock. Um, you know, the the Uber pooling model. Um, you know, other rideshare technologies just haven't had the the usership and the um, the clout that Uber does. And so, when I look out five, ten years from now, I mean, you could argue that the cars are still going to be used. They're just going to be concentrated. So instead of buying a new car every five, six years, maybe that Uber driver needs to buy one every year. So it's an interesting thought uh, and question, Alexander. I'm not sure what that market looks like five to 10 years from now. It's likely going to be like most adoptive technologies from my, from my perspective. It is going to, it could be a generational thing. I know there are plenty of 20 something year olds that I work with that have definitely thought twice about when and, and how they buy a car and if Uber can, you know, can work for them. Well, you know, I think that I think this is important, Alexander. I mean, there's, the, you're a technology correspondent. If you think back to 2000, when I first moved to New York, there was this stigma like, man, wow, you're actually going cell phone only? You're really going to cut the landline? And now that's the industry standard. And now you go and talk to a group of um, college students, and the overwhelming majority of them do not pay for cable TV. They they Netflix and chill. They are cord cutters. They, I mean, you've written about this. They... They like to have that a la carte relationship. It's like, you know, hook up with my content, not have a long-term relationship with it. And similarly, I know it's a tortured comparison, but it seems to suggest something cultural. There's no love lost for the heavy overhead of buying and keeping and financing and maintaining a car. So it's not anomalous to go around and find a 20-something, even in a, a sprawling place like Houston with tons of highways and not great 
mass transit saying I'm Uber only. That's right. But so I think people are much more comfortable renting rather than owning today in media, potentially in cars too. But it's Uber and Lyft and these services are going to have to become cheaper for it to make economic sense. There was this really interesting analysis done by Deutsche Bank that looked at, it, they estimate, um, Rob Lash at Deutsche Bank uh, estimates that the average UberX uh, price per mile, including time, is around $1.50. And car ownership in the top 20 urban centers of, of the top 20 MSAs um, is is around 90 cents, um, but higher in some cities like New York City and San Francisco. Um, and so it would make sense in the densest urban areas in in some cases to forgo car ownership and use an Uber instead. But that's, that's not very much of the American population. That's where we get to the autonomous world. So if you don't have to pay the driver um, and you can charge, let's say, 80 or 90 cents, then you become really competitive with car ownership. So that's why they're racing to get there because that's when I think people will choose to give up their car. Right now, it's it you know it, it's still probably better than car ownership. The average cost is around $8,400 a year to own a car, which is a ton given what we just talked about, about how often it's not used. But Uber fares are unpredictable. There's surge pricing. If you if you live in San Francisco and need to go down twice a week to Silicon Valley, it, it's just not, it might not make economic sense at these rates. So that's why they want to get cheaper. You know, Alexandra, I always hear that lament from, from venture capitalists and, 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 and angel financiers and funders and everything that if I were presented with this scenario, yes, there's plenty of pain in the model. There's plenty of inefficiency, but way more bottlenecks and um, uh, inhibitions and kind of holes that I could blow into this model. I would not have invested in Uber. I mean, it, it's just such a grand slam home run now that it's worth $70 billion even before an IPO. Uh, that one is just like an evergreen lament that I hear from VCs left and right today, that it almost questions the entire VC model, that you, you didn't use your imagination enough. But then, too, I wonder why Apple has just invested in ride-sharing abroad. I mean, I understand that the iPhone and the explosion of the smartphone enabled this conceit of, of ride-sharing to begin with. I mean, the ubiquity of the smartphone internationally. But why do they want to get involved in something that seems absolutely unrelated to what they do day in, day out. So tech companies today, I mean, the CEOs of tech companies are acting much more like statesmen than they ever had before, kind of making state visits to countries where they do a lot of business, um, thinking very strategically about where they invest. And this is one instance where they were investing at a time um, when Uber was there and they were choosing, in, this is in China, in, and they were choosing to invest in the Chinese darling, Didi. Um, so part of it is, I think, a show of confidence in the Chinese um, ability to out-innovate an American rival. As if to, to bow down before the Chinese, like, I need you actually for iPhone sales and for Spectrum and other, other vagaries, so I'm It's a really there. important market for Apple, so I think that's part of it. I wouldn't... Um, I wouldn't count out that Apple is very interested in the idea of shared mobility. And, uh, you know, there have been reports that they're working on a car that is top secret. But I am sure that they are eyeing this space because if you think about it, it you know, it they, they're very interested in, in inefficiencies like a lot of technology companies are. They're very interested in uh, capturing as much time as you're possible, uh, as is possible. The car, you know, people on... On Earth, people spend about 400 billion hours a year in cars driving. Um, it's 
a really big opportunity from, from a content perspective, from a kind of a screen perspective of what, um, what you might be able to capitalize on. Uh, Apple, you know, if, if one's in a car, Apple doesn't want to lose the relationship with the consumer. So they would want to potentially have your iPhone plug into um, whatever you're using. And I think to go back to your question about why Apple is investing in DD, um, it gives them insight into what is, I think, at uh, to an industry that's at its very early stage, um, they're seeing how people are riding around and it gives them a lot of insight and analysis there, as well as a vote of confidence in the Chinese winner. Now, you can't have a conversation about Uber and the future of logistics and transportation uh, absent talking about the most talked about and admired, arguably admired car company in the United States today, Tesla. And I understand this is a little clickbaity, Alexandra, and you're from a noble, uh, very rarefied publication, but we like to get, you know, we like to talk. Um, Tesla. Tesla surely has a horse in this race, especially with autonomous self-driving vehicles, something that uh, uh, Uber for its growth in your story, I mean, a lot of this is going to hinge on on automation, how much... Uh, you know, if especially uh, with regards to relations with the workforce, an increasingly agitated workforce that wants to get a bigger cut. I mean, imagine the headlines when Uber IPOs and you have Travis at the Nasdaq or wherever ringing that bell, and suddenly they say this man is worth thirty-five billion dollars, and all these workers start striking nationally, and then little by little, he's going to automate them. So invariably, when I read your story, I was thinking about Tesla's role in this, and the other mad scientist on the on the left coast, Elon Musk. How, if at all, do their paths intersect? They have. So Elon has suggested offhandedly um, that. Tesla might consider something like this, so that if you buy a Tesla, you might be able to rent it out in the future when you're not using it in an autonomous world. Um, whether or not Tesla is the firm to do this, someone is. I mean, uh, there are going to be other people competing in this space, and it becomes much easier to do so in an automated world because you don't have to spend as much to woo drivers to your platform and passengers. Uh, so Tesla is extremely interested in this, as are other companies, um, and that's why we're seeing a race it, when it comes to autonomous technology to try and get there first. Uber understands it's existential. Uh, it's certainly not an existential um, opportunity for Elon and Tesla necessarily. Um, I think that if, if they can increase their production of cars, they'll be um, okay. They don't need to launch a mobility service. But um, in the longer term, I think they're thinking what their future looks like, and I think they're interested in potentially getting there. Yeah, Alexander, you, you, this is Jeff. You, you, um, you mentioned another car titan. Who, who else is, and that there's going to be competition here, who else, uh, we saw Alphabet's um, uh, board member or, or employee step down off of Uber's board, I think you noted that in your article, uh, that does that signal, you know, Google moving back in here in a big way? What, what other uh, titans in the industry are well positioned to, to develop this technology? So the... There, a lot are eyeing this space. So the automakers are eyeing this space. We've seen General Motors invest in Lyft, Uber's rival in America. Uh, and I think that, you know, there were rumors that they even considered buying Lyft. Um, they might still, yeah. Uh, Ford is investing in autonomous technology. It, it's not clear to me that automakers have the same skill set. Um, you know, they do want to disrupt themselves. They don't want to be like, 
Kodak that saw technological change happening and decided not to um, you know, launch digital cameras um, and just, you know, stand by film. Um, so they don't want to just be the manufacturers of machines and leave the software and a lot of the profits to tech companies. But it's just not clear to me that they have the skill set to launch a mobility service. You know, they need a lot. Talent doesn't necessarily want to. Saying I want, you know, I just got a job at Ford doesn't necessarily have the same ring as I just got a job at Uber or Tesla or um, Google. Um, so they have a talent problem um, and then a data problem. There's a, the, a, there's a ton of knowledge from having operated a mobility service for years and years and knowing where the popular pickup points are, what, what the times of demand, etc. Um, it's, you know, it, it's actually an extremely complex problem to route cars um, and passengers through um, carpooling services like both Lyft and Uber do um, through their shared services. Um, so the automakers are one. It's a question mark about whether they'll successfully compete um, in mobility. The other very obvious one is Alphabet, um, Google's parent company, and this past week uh, it was announced that Waze, which is a mapping app owned by Alphabet, so it's not part of Google, it's actually run separately, um, is launching a pilot in San Francisco, it's done one in Israel, um, to match carpoolers through its mapping app Waze. Um, the, right now Google's not going to take a cut. Um, that is Uber's biggest existential risk, um, which is what if someone else comes in here and drops the price and uses it as a loss leader for another service? Um, I mean, I guess you could com compare it potentially to Amazon? What if it's willing to lose money on books to gain market share? So what if someone else comes in and is willing to offer a mobility service on the cheap and just drive down um, Uber's potential profitability? But how do you offer um, mobility I, service on the cheap if, if your drivers are not, after all, they're not your workforce, um, they are contractors, they are uh, you know freelancers out there, if they're already pushing back at the pricing, if they're chafing? I mean, talk about Lyft. Everybody, Lyft is almost like a, a an ancillary, like a footnote on on the Uber explosion. Sure. I mean, you could it, it probably. So two things. One is I talked to someone who said who who is close to the discussions that both Apple and Google have been having, who said that they have actually backed away from launching a mobility service that uses human drivers because of exactly what you say, that there's just too much of a political risk to um, drivers comparing their low earnings to the huge salaries that are paid to people who work in the Googleplex and in Apple's, um, in Apple's headquarters. Uh, it's just, it, politically, it's just unpalatable. So that may be true. They may decide in a driver world that they don't want to compete. Another scenario, though, would be these companies have a ton of cash. And this is where we get kind of into the imaginative realm, speculative realm, because there's no evidence that this is going to happen. But what if a Google, what if even an Amazon decided that they weren't going to take a cut, they just wanted to build up customer loyalty, um, so they'd give drivers all the money and just undercut Uber on price to gain share. That is a huge concern, I think, of this what Uber's investors call irrational, um, the irrational money flowing. Well, take it, take irrational money. I think that's a, that's a good segue to this, Jeff. How much of Uber's rise is a function of, I'd, I'd say, promiscuous capital markets in the past five or six years? Anything goes. Again, I said faith-based earlier, growth more than stability. You don't need profitability. It's a bit of a redux of some of what we saw in 99 and 2000 that didn't end too well. Uh, but 
Uber is specifically in hyper growth mode right now. It's like book the cities, worry about profitability later. But that's all a direct function of its constant post-money valuation and mark-to-market and $70 billion now. Maybe it's worth $80 billion pre-IPO. And then all of this culminating in an IPO, which does need uh, at least a stable market, not a bear market. What if the markets were to fall apart right now? And that would invariably trickle down to Uber's inability to have a cut rate model that just keeps losing money. Yeah. Uh, well, I think first thing that we look at, I look at in any in any business situation is the size of the market. And we've got, you know, sell side big bank analysts saying this is a 10 trillion dollar market. So the the vast sheer size of this market can support to your point a sliver of that market can support a big valuation. Uh, growth is and and maybe in um, now more than ever, is of, is the unicorn here that um, when Uber can open up new markets and instantaneously, you know, switch on new revenue, most of the economy can't do that. So, you know, the time will tell and, and the public markets will, will ultimately um, determine the, the, the fundamental value of this business. But um, Alexandra points to, to two uh, other unicorns that I think we would all look back on and say, yeah, I, I, I would have bet against an Amazon uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I would have bet against Facebook 10 years ago, and we would have been wrong. What's interesting is that Travis Kalanick, the CEO, has said that he doesn't want to go public for as long as possible. He said, only when my investors and employees come in to my office with um, axes, I think is <laughs> the weapon of choice he used, will I then know it's time? You know, when I interviewed him, he said, you know, 2040 is how long, you know, is when I'd go public if I could. He's not going to have that choice. His investors are going to want liquidity before then. But this Uber is the poster child for this kind of perma-private startup. It's generation where they're just staying private as long as humanly possible to avoid exactly what you're saying, which is the the risk that the market turns against them and becomes less patient than their private investors have been tolerating losses. What drives me batty, Alexandra, when I look at this is is um, you want to be able to look at this as a kind of a pure play IP technology company that it's not it's not so much a you know a widget or a, like in Silicon Valley that that uh, appliance in a box. It's it's more a way of thinking that they want to spread that they're opening up their. Um, software to other people and welcoming widgets and and kind of bolt-on tweaks to the business model. It just runs up, though, against the hard vagaries of transportation and fuel costs and all these other variables that are really kind of here and now, actual infrastructure versus virtual, in-the-sky, in-the-cloud, notional infrastructure. And again, you know, let's bring Amazon back into this conversation. Amazon, if you were to tell me back in the mid-90s that here, you, here's the S1 for Amazon.com, the prospectus. And if you could look into your crystal ball and say, Amazon is not just going to be a bookseller or a CD seller, but 15 years hence, it's going to be selling shoes, diapers, baby formula, uh, groceries, anything you can imagine. I mean, web services and the like. It's invariably going to run up against the mediocrity of, one, the U.S. Postal Service, and two, UPS, which has has had labor difficulties in the past. You're susceptible to an oil shock. And yet it's done that. And yet it's traversed an oil shock. And Jeff Bezos has convinced people that, go with me. I know what I'm doing. And next thing you know, he's worth substantially more than Walmart. So this is where I struggle. And I know I I kind of splurted that all out loud and I didn't exactly ask anything. But this is so shape-shifty 
and it's so unprecedented, but it runs up against very hard realities like oil prices, like the mediocrity of, of infrastructure, actual infrastructure across the United States. How is it happening? So the Amazon comparison is really interesting, and it raises the question, if the mobility services market, so ride hailing, is going to be kind of a thinner margin business, what's going to be the thing that helps fund the expansion? So Amazon now has an AWS, um, it's cloud. Amazon Web Services, in the cloud, ubiquitous, brings prints money. money. What's Uber's equivalent going to be? You know, it's clearly not the ride-hailing business that's printing money without, you know, significant costs of expansion. So, is 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 Uber going to have an AWS equivalent? Um, I mean, that's really difficult to bank on. There's no sign of that. Yeah, but as as is right now, seventy billion dollar valuation is kind of presupposing that what what works right now. I mean, I guess you're betting that it's going to have a profit center or a revenue center. This is what I don't get. You're you're ultimately reselling labor or workforce participation or something sociological. It's so it's so kind of tenuous, but yet it exists. I mean, you you don't have cars truly as many cars as you would expect on Uber's balance sheet, but you have all of these freelancers out there. It's tangible and yet it's not. What the, but what Uber was not expecting is um, by shouting from the hills that they discovered gold, which is how they raised money, right? They sold their story everywhere, have raised an unprecedented amount of capital, you know, $18 billion in equity and debt. Uh, by doing that, they've attracted a lot of other people who want to mine for gold. So they have competition that has also raised a lot of money and is incredibly persistent. So I would argue that their margins would have looked a lot better um, had competition not come as quickly and persistently into this business. And I don't see that changing. There's so much money in this space that the margins are going to look a lot thinner. I mean, I, I spoke to the head of Uber's France business who said, uh, French business in Paris, who said, you know, we talk about what the margins look like, but ultimately this is going to be a potentially a high volume, low margin business. It's like retail. It's like transportation. Um, that is not what Uber's investors were anticipating at the beginning. They were thinking this was going to be eBay-like, you know, a digital marketplace. You just take a cut. But the fact that there's so much competition means there's a price war. It means that they have, have to subsidize both passengers and drivers. It's a great time to be a customer today because, you know, venture capitalist money is going to subsidize so many trips and so much income. But um, long term, something's going to have to change and they're going to have to, I think, show more profitability. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Alexander Switch. She's U.S. technology editor at The Economist and author of the exquisite cover package this week on uh, Uber from zero to $70 billion. Uh, Uber World, the race to reinvent transport. And here in studio is Jeff Burkett, um, transportation specialist at the investment bank, Harris Williams. Uh, Alexandra, um, you have, let's let's get to the topic of these self-driving cars. I'm terrified to get into one. I know you've been in them. It's part of your job description. You talk to people out in the valley. You talk to technologists and futurists and thought leaders, and there seems to, to be this kind of inevitability to it. It's our manifest destiny to go to the efficiency of self-driving cars, and it's going to revolutionize the way we think about traffic and injuries and insurance. Comment on that. The, so I think there's a question. It will be revolutionary. Um, and I mean, do you so buy it? Do you questions. buy it? I mean, tell us about your experiences the first time in a self-driving car. Well, I think, so my experience in a self-driving car is that it goes from thrilling to boring in about 60 seconds. It's like driving with a grandmother today because it, or a very conscientious grandmother. We go, you know, you go below the speed limit, you um, stop 
at every stop and wait several seconds. You drive, you know, to the to the letter of the law. Um, and so I think about what it will be like to drive on freeways like this and um, in cities. I, I, um, I think most people prefer to bend the rules a little bit. And there's so much technology. You know, there's so much that still needs to be worked out. I mean, we are, I would say at least a decade um, from kind of level four autonomy where we're gonna be able to see cars drive in any uh, weather condition. Google is testing its autonomous car, which is where I've, um, you know, I've been in, um, in Mountain View, which is you know, 70 degrees and sunny most of the year. There's no snow, um, sleet, etc. Um, Uber is going to start, you know, Uber is testing in Pittsburgh, which they describe as the black diamond of weather patterns. That will help. But there's so much um, road ahead, if you will, here um, to get there. And from a regulatory standpoint, most cities and states have not even begun to grapple with this. The really interesting question from a regulatory standpoint is whether tech companies, um, as they've done in the past, you know, have just pushed ahead and launched a product. So Uber got its start, not by negotiating first and then launching later. They just pushed into markets. Will they be able to do this in an autonomous world? And I asked Travis Kalanick, the CEO of Uber, that question, and he said, you know, yes, there's a lot of places where there's not, um, there are not yet laws on the books and we can just quote unquote roll out. Um, I do not think that governments are going to look too kindly on a tech company putting an autonomous car or autonomous lorry, you know, barreling down a highway without asking permission first um, because sa the potential societal implications, the, the safety of passengers, pedestrians um, and the public is uh, m much more delicate in this situation than it is if you release software, you know, an app with a glitch. Uh, madam, did you just use the word lorry colloquially? <laughs> only only since you brought up that I work for a for an English. No, I wanna I wanna understand what happens. Like when you meet up with your peeps and everything and you go back and see your college friends and Oh yeah, we talk about lorries constantly. It's all we talk about. But what are some other words? I mean this is just a parenthetical aside. I know it's wasting everyone's time, but I really I mean this is rarefied air here. I guess in the in the domain of cars you talk about the boot, not the trunk. Um, what else do you talk about? Do you eat bangers and mash when you're on the road? <laughs> do you drink that Pims? Anyway, no, no. I digress as, I, as, I, as I usually do. Jeff, talk to me about Asset Light. Asset Light is, is, is kind of problematic, but it also it goes back to Enron. Enron had off-balance sheet. Certain airlines, for example, if you, if you want to uh, have a sort of lease agreement, you don't have to have these heavily... Um, capital intensive things and drags on the balance sheet if you go asset light. But asset light is also problematic in that you don't completely control your own destiny. I mean, in this case, you know, it's the example of Airbnb. Airbnb doesn't own inventory, and that's a great thing, but it's also from a quality assurance perspective, very problematic, especially if you get pushback from all these drivers and another player comes in and suddenly starts to annex your drivers. Capacity is, is the key here. But I think we've seen in our marketplace, the broader transportation logistics, non-asset-based businesses tend to be valued much more highly than the assets, um, the asset-based providers. You know, C.H. Robinson, which is the, the bellwether and truck brokerage, which, you know, we can, uh, Uber could could be edging into their space, but um, C.H. Robinson owns no assets and simply is a marketplace for shippers seeking capacity and folks with capacity seeking shipments. So, you know, they're not unprecedented on the on the side of, of owning no assets. Uh, and in fact, I think they're, they're in good company there from, from logistic standpoint. 
And where else are you seeing spare capacity as you look across the map? For example, I think about I think about the hated airline industry, and I'm not asking you to rag on them. I know, you know, you've covered them in the past. We've talked about them in the past. Uh, there, they've been able to cartelize effectively and and bring down capacity. And it's very hard to find a cheap seat right now. It's very hard to find legroom. Does that still lend itself to an Uberization, for example, where people want to be able to, I mean, Priceline to a certain extent lets you bid on spare capacity, but you're limited by the fact that there are only so many major airlines and discount airlines right now. And you can't just commission a plane and and do an Uber X analog with a bunch of people if you want to you know, get a flight to Asheville. Yeah. Of all the industries, the airline industry would probably be the the most difficult to infuse a, a, an Uber mindset into. I mean, we've had recent startup airlines, Spirit Airlines, for example, went went public several years ago, was making more money at the time than, than most of the majors. Um, but it is much more difficult to start an airline than it is a starting trucking company. You and I, if we wanted to, could start a trucking company this afternoon. Um, mm. We could go buy a truck and we could start calling folks for, for loads and um, that that's where I think people feel like the technology behind Uber could could make waves in the transportation industry. What about rental cars? Well, I, I think I don't know what Alexander if I read it in, in your article or another, but Hertz is um, recognizes that a new customer base for them is the the part time Uber driver. I've got Saturday off this week. I I'm going to go rent a Hertz car for forty bucks, and I I can make you know an ex well in excess of that driving Uber for eight hours, and so there you know. Back to allocating uh, capital and assets efficiently, you know, a car rental place that's renting cars throughout the rest of the week, if I'm a spare, which I see as kind of the typical Uber driver, somebody who's not doing this as a full-time gig, but wants to log 20 hours when they want to log those 20 hours, if they need a, a brand new Toyota Camry, efficient Toyota Camry to do that, why wouldn't they? Will we ever get to the point, Alexandra, and, and, and people are doing it at Airbnb right now, they trust strangers to come in, and yes, there is some semblance of quality assurance and a user interface and and credit card and license information where people whose cars after all are only being used you know 20% of their productive time are comfortable renting them out to others uber style if we see that that's the guess right potentially in an autonomous world you might not use mobility services you might just buy your own car and then rent it out when you're not using it um I would not be doing that. <laughs> I, I would probably be the person who forgoes car ownership and just... Wait, hold up. You um, do you live in San Francisco proper? I do. Aren't the rents like... Iris- I know you're paid a, a princess's sum at The Economist, but I mean, the, the market is so ridiculous right now. Don't you want to kind of variableize it? Don't you want to be able to, to capture some of the rents, to take some money off the table with your palatial Russian Hill property? Well, I think it's, um, you know, I, I like to think about, I like to be optimistic about human nature, but sending my car out on the road, if I'm not in it, um, and trusting that people um, are clean, take their candy wrappers with them, um, you know, don't come in with dirty shoes. I think it requires a lot of trust to send your car out into the world. Requi- to my there. mind, Would it requires a lot trusting? more trust to have strangers use your bathroom, yeah. sleep on your bed. I mean, this is where, look... Going back, and this you talked about eBay, for example, just a little bit of autobiographical information. My first job out of college was at the brokerage Goldman Sachs. I was working in private wealth. And even before I took my Series 7, the VP I worked with said, here, we got, a, we got an IPO coming up. It's a, 
this offshoot Pez Dispenser novelty company, eBay. Look it up. Read the S1. Tell me what you think, kid. I listened to the conference call and Pierre Omidyar and all these people talking about it. I said, this crap is crazy, man. It's the first time I thought of that that conceit of faith-based business model. And yet it wasn't crazy, right? After it built a certain critical mass and you got the network effects and enough people were talking about it, you put faith into it. And so how far off could we be from various other iterations of kind of the uber faith model. Yeah, to add to that autobiography, the first thing I ever sold online was actually Beanie Baby on eBay. I sent it in the mail and actually got paid for it. So um, the hobbyists did. I think Beanie Babies actually played a large role in eBay's growth at the beginning, um, which is funny to think about. Well, in the few minutes we have left, I mean, I, I just want you to look into your crystal ball and spin this forward for us. I mean, this has a binary outcome. It could flop. There's a huge labor risk. There's a huge public relations risk to this. There's a you know the fact that very cash-rich players like Google and Amazon can come in and kind of drink their milkshake. Uh, there's a risk that the, the markets collapse, or they could end up taking on a nice chunk of that addressable $10 trillion market. Yeah, I think there's three outcomes. I think one is the flop um, goes public, you know, uh, maybe trades down in the beginning, maybe trades up and then declines rapidly because of some regulatory issue, something that goes wrong, slowing growth, you know, which could spook people, huge losses. There's the medium, kind of, it goes up a little bit and kind of stays around where it is. And then there's the home run outcome where we'll look back at the $70 billion figure, just like we look back at Facebook's, you know, $100 billion IPO and think, gosh. How quaint. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we were so naive. it was a fascinating story to report. And I, I've worked on this for the last maybe two and a half months, and I've never worked on a story that has changed as much. So when I first started reporting, I had I got a Chinese visa. I was about to go to China. It, the Chinese losses of Uber's business were astronomical, and it really looks like it could be their Achilles heel. And of course, they've gotten out of China. They've now done this logistics um, acquisition with Auto. Um, that this is all you know. They're launching their autonomous car in Pittsburgh. It's a very fast-moving company, but it makes it incredibly hard to predict where it's all going to go. But it's certainly fun to talk about. Jeff, close it out. Oh, it's it's that type of dynamism from from Uber that has me as a transportation guy thinking, you know, that they could rewrite uh, a sliver of the transportation and maybe a big slice of the transportation industry. And, and, and that, that fast-moving nature, Alexandra, I don't want to bet against them. That is Jeff Burkett, director at the investment bank Harris-Williams a transportation guru who helped me interview the wonderful Alexandra Switch, U.S. technology editor at The Economist. Thank you so much for taking the time and um, slowing down to talk to us. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Same time next week, right? We'll continue it. For sure. Anytime. <laughs> You're welcome. Open invitation. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and Beatgasm. We are on-demand, autonomous, asset light. Never a surge charge, but we do accept cash tips. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week. 